Today's episode is brought to you by the German Book Prize winning Where You Come From by Sasha Stanisic, a novel translated by Damien Searles that blends autofiction, fable, and choose-your-own-adventure to tell the story of a Yugoslavian family in the 1990s whose world is uprooted and remade by war. Their history, their life before the conflict, and the years that followed their escape as they created a new life in Germany. Set in a village where only 13 people remain, in lost and made-up memories, in coincidences, in choices, and in a dragon's den, it's a novel about homelands, both remembered and imagined, lost and found. Says Jennifer Croft, Where You Come From is a triumph, funny and touching and subtly profound, as it ranges from chronicle to prose poem to folk tale, it builds a momentum that dazzles throughout, an exhilarating and powerful read. Where You Come From is out on December 7th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's episode is also brought to you by Loners, the making of a street library out now from Perfect Day Publishing. In 2011, Laura Moulton founded Street Books, a mobile library serving people living outside in Portland, Oregon. That summer, Ben Hodgson became one of her most dedicated regulars, setting the still unbroken single-season record for book borrowing. Then, Ben's routine changed, and he didn't cross paths again with Laura for almost two years. Loners is the story they began to tell when they reconnected, offering a street-level perspective of a community whose stories are seldom told, alternating between their two unforgettable points of view in this addictively readable memoir. Quote, The right book can change a person forever in a few hours' time, says Karen Russell. Anyone looking for evidence to pair with this grand claim of mine should read Loners immediately. And I'd like to add something to Karen Russell's comments here. As I watched Laura create this bike-powered mobile library for people living outside, issuing patrons street book library cards without them needing the typical proof of address, where it started as a small summer art project 10 years ago and has grown into a nonprofit with many paid librarians, including patrons who themselves have become librarians. I've seen her do this against all the biases, all the naysayers that people living outdoors wouldn't be interested in reading or wouldn't return the books. There's a reason writer Omar el calls street books one of the single best ideas he's seen in this town, in Portland, Oregon. And there's a reason Laura's book with Ben Hodgson, one of her patrons who became a street librarian and now co-author with her of Loners, has become a local phenomenon. Given that we're heading into the gift-giving season, if you go to streetbooks.org loners, you can check out a video trailer for the book. You can find a link to buy it, and you can check out Street Books itself for your holiday giving. I hope you do. And given that we're heading not only into gift-giving season, but also a time when we think of resolutions for the new year, 
perhaps you're a longtime listener of the show, have found these conversations meaningful for your own writing or for your own art making, or maybe simply meaningful and thought-provoking in their own right. Or perhaps this is your first listen or first read if you're reading the transcript and you appreciate this long-form conversation today with Raymond Antrobus, a deep dive into, among many other things, a deaf and disability poetics and what this poetics means for all of us. Either way, whether long time or first time, perhaps it's a time to consider as we head into 2022, transforming yourself from a listener slash reader to a listener slash reader supporter of Between the Covers, joining a community of people helping shape the future of the show. There are innumerable potential benefits, rewards, and gifts available for doing so. And you can check them all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's program with the poet Raymond Antrobus. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is British Jamaican poet, educator, writer, and self-described investigator of missing sounds, Raymond Antrobus. Antrobus first found a community of poets in the London Slam and open mic scene where he won numerous poetry slams. He's the Farago International Slam Champion of 2010. He won the Canterbury Slam in 2013 and was joint winner of the Open Calabash Slam in 2016. Antrobus's first published collection, his chapbook, Shapes and Disfigurements of Raymond Antrobus, came out in 2012. In 2017, he published his second chapbook, To Sweet and Bitter, the same year his poem, Sound Machine, was picked by Ocean Vong for the Jeffrey Dearmer Award. But it was 2018 with the publication in the UK of his debut book, The Perseverance, when Antrobus found incredible widespread critical and public acclaim. Kaba Akbar says of The Perseverance, it's magic the way this poet is able to bring together so much. Deafness, race, masculinity, a mother's dementia, a father's demise, with such dexterity. Raymond Antrobus is as searching a poet as you're likely to find writing today. Malika Booker adds, The perseverance is an insightful, frank, and intimate rumination of language, identity, 
heritage, loss, and the art of communication, ranging from tender elegies about his father to frank interrogations of deafness. Antrobus highlights the persistence of memory and our need to connect. These colloquial, historical, and conversational poems plunder the space of missing and absence in speech, our conversations, between what we hear and what we do not say. Thought-provoking and eloquent monologues explore the poet's Jamaican-British heritage with such compassion where the spirit and rhythm of each speaker dominates. These are courageous autobiographical poems of praise, difficulties, testimony, and love. The Perseverance was shortlisted for the Griffin Prize and the Forward Prize for Best First Collection, was the winner of the Sunday Times University of Warwick Young Writer Award, the Ted Hughes Award, the Somerset Mom Award, and the Rathbones Folio Prize, the first poet to ever receive the award, and was a Poetry Book of the Year at The Guardian, The Sunday Times, and The Poetry School. Since then, three of Antrobus's poems have been added to the syllabus of the General Certificate of Secondary Education in the UK. He has received a fellowship with the Royal Society of Literature, become a member of the Order of the British Empire, headlined the London Book Fair as Poet of the Fair, hosted a BBC radio documentary, Inventions and Sound, performed at the Paralympic Homecoming Ceremony at Wembley Stadium, and even had a deaf school change the name of its building to his name, usurping Beethoven himself. Along the way, he's had poems published in Poetry, the Poetry Review, and the Deaf Poet Society, received a fellowship from Cave Canem, and was one of the world's first recipients of an MA in Spoken Word Education from Goldsmiths University. He's a board member for English Pen, an advocate for Deaf Kids International and National Deaf Children's Society, and now also a writer of children's books, having published this year the book Can Bear Ski, illustrated by Polly Dunbar, and selected as the 2021 Ezra Jack Keats Book Award honoree. The original plan was to have Raymond on to talk about The Perseverance, which came out in North America in the spring of this year from Tin House. But when I learned that he had a new collection on the horizon, his first since his 2018 tour de force, and that it too was going to come out this year, both in the UK with Picador and in the US with Tin House, we decided to wait to discuss both books together, much as they have both arrived together here in North America in 2021. Raymond Antropis's second full collection is called All the Names Given and is already shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. Camon Felix says of All the Names Given, This collection is a brave, tender, and generous piece of music where family is a chord forever troubled by the process of being named. With a knife-like precision, All the Names Given manages to caption the speaker's dance with the ghosts of his bloodline, offering us a haunting study on what we can find in the silences of history when history is recognized as more than a noun, when recognized as something alive and kinetic, 
something constantly in conversation with the present. I can't wait to see how this timely book ripples through our world. Welcome to Between the Covers, Raymond Antrobus. Wow, thank you, David. Uh, an honor to be here. And what a what a what a thing to just sit and bathe <laughs> <laughs> in the light of one's biography. I'm like, oh my god, I really have been doing a lot. <laughs> I, I love there's like a there's like an in, it felt like an incantatory biography of all of the things that have happened, <laughs> particularly in the last three years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I'm like, it's interesting as well hearing like the spoken words, um, kind of, I don't know, accolades in history, which is often not actually mentioned in uh, like literary spaces. It's kind of compartmentalized in, in, in this way uh, that I just noticed that seemed to just happen. Um, so I, I actually appreciate hearing, you know, the, the breadth, the full kind of biography, the full uh, journey of the work in a way. Well, I want to first just congratulate you on becoming a new father and for having mm -hmm. this interview within the early weeks of, of what you described as inc the incubation of your new family. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. Appreciate that. Your poems often do focus on family as well as on ancestry and lineage and at times your own childhood being mothered and being fathered or not being so and navigating being deaf before diagnosis and after and both to sweet and bitter and the perseverance are collections that are about among many other things, your relationship with your own father and, and also your, your um, first encounter of language or one of your first encounters with language being him reading to you. So, so I, I thought in honor of your, your newborn son and you yourself becoming a father, maybe we could just open up with the poem, Happy Birthday Moon, if, if you would be willing to introduce it to us and, and read it. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is a nice place to begin. Um, so Happy Birthday Moon is a uh, pantoum I wrote. Um, it's a last poem in The Perseverance. And I guess the difficult question it asks is where does language begin for me um and you know that the the memory that was evoked in, with, with that question was you know being read to by my father at night time um and there's a particular book called happy birthday moon the same title of the poem um which i would often ask to be read to the, the book is uh, a children's picture book and it's about a bear that lives out in the woods, the forest, and this one particular knight stands on the highest hill of his wood, looks up at the sky, sees a full moon, and the bear says, it's my birthday, and the bear's voice echoes through the forest, through the valleys, through the trees, and he hears his echo, it's my birthday, and he looks at the moon and he says, wow. It's the moon's birthday too. And it sets up this kind of, what I recognize now as a death poetic device, a kind of call and response. Cause in the, in, in the being a deaf person or a hard of hearing person in the hearing world, you're often asking people to repeat, you know? And then when you're kind of looking at different poetry forms and how many of the most enduring poetry forms depend on that, that poetic device of repetition, 
there's just such a kind of fusion of uh, opportunity and play in language. Um, and one thing I should also say is my dad had a very deep voice. And so um, the kind of deafness I have, I don't hear any high pitched sounds. I don't hear anyone who has like a, a, a light voice. I hear uh, like bassy sounds, deeper pitch sounds um, a lot more uh, fluidly. So my dad had this kind of presence in his voice um, that I kind of had a relationship with in, in itself. And that I think comes into this poem. Happy birthday, Moon. Dad reads aloud. I follow his finger across the page. Sometimes his finger moves past words tracing white space. He makes the moon say something new every night to his deaf son who slurs his speech. Sometimes his finger moves past words tracing white space. Tonight he gives the moon my name, but I can't say it. His deaf son who slurs his speech. Dad taps the page, says, try again. Tonight he gives the moon my name, but I can't say it. I say, Raynan Akobok. He laughs. Dad taps the page, says, try again. But I like making him laugh. I say my mistake again. I say, Raynan Akobok. He laughs, says, Raymond, there's something else. I like making him laugh. I say my mistake again, Raynan Akobok. What else will help us? He says, Raymond, there's something else. I'd like to be the moon, the bear, even the rain. Raynan Akobok. What else will help us hear each other, really hear each other? I'd like to be the moon, the bear, even the rain. Dad makes the moon say something new every night and we hear each other, really hear each other. As dad reads aloud, I follow his finger across the page. You're listening to Raymond Antrobus read from his first full collection of poetry, The Perseverance. So, so you call yourself the investigator of missing sounds. In this poem that we just heard, it is the way you speak before your parents realize you are deaf that we hear. But in many places in your poetry, it is what you don't hear, the missing sounds. Uh, the book you just read from, The Perseverance, it opens with an epigraph from Robin Cost Lewis. And, the, and that epigraph goes, there is no telling what language is inside the body. But this line is a mishearing of her reading her poem, which is written on the page as, there is no telling what languishes inside the body. And your, your first children's book that came out recently, which nicely creates this, this circle with Happy Birthday Moon, I think, um, your book Can Bear Ski is named after what you heard when, when people would ask you, can you hear me? And, and what strikes me the most is how the missing sounds have affected your name. Um, mm. Both you're speaking of it in, in Happy Birthday Moon um, and the way you hear it. And as you mentioned, um, not hearing the, high, the highest pitch sounds. Um, so we, what we learn in the poem Echo is that when people would say antrobus, you would hear antrop. Uh, and that you thought your name for a while was Antrob. 
but thinking about a name as part of our sense of self and you both speaking it and hearing it differently. What strikes me is that when the deaf school wanted to change their building name from Beethoven House to Antrobus House, you wanted them to change it to Antrub House, which is what it is. Um, and, and this gesture of you naming your, your children's book after a quote-unquote mishearing suggests to me this might be a clue into your poetics. And I wondered if you could, you could talk about the investigation of missing sounds in light of the way you, in both of these cases, are centering what you actually hear the way you actually hear these sounds, not what you are quote-unquote supposed to hear. Right, yeah, for sure. That's, um, that is such a, a concise take on uh, what, I, yeah, what I call is my poetic practice of deafness or deaf poetics, um, as, as Ilya Kaminsky would say. Something I noticed in my early work of trying to get poems published um, was often with, with editors or often my conversations around my work were kind of people asking me to uh, explain, correct, clarify, um, like things, moments like that, mishearings. Um, and it seemed like like people were kind of often telling me, no, you, you can't, you know, you can't confuse your reader. And my argument would be, I'm not confusing my reader. I'm bringing them closer to what the experience is. Mm -hmm. I don't assume that all my readers are hearing people. I assume that my readers are also um, interested in the well, I mean, what we would also call, I think Meg Day called it a mythology of, of silence and mythology of noise, of sound, um, which is this strange idea that everyone has the same experience with sound. You either can hear or you can't. And that binary is uh, a lie. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted, I realized that in my work, this is what I was trying to do. I was trying to, one, assert what my relationship with sound and language is and i'm also trying to disrupt a kind of uh mainstream assumed idea of what sound and language is and i'm doing that through the prism of poetry where all of these kind of um investigations testimonies passions of mine uh meet um because I was, you know, I was raised on poetry. I've said this so many, so many times now about, you know, my parents, like even though both my parents weren't poets, they loved poetry. So I, I had this really rich childhood um, in terms of kind of cult, what they call culture capital. Um, and so I never felt like being a poet or pursuing poetry was something that I couldn't do was something outside of the imagination for me. Um, and this was a complete accident in itself. So even that is a kind of, you know, it aligns with the idea of a mishearing or a disruption or, a, or an accident. Like, uh, you know, I think when my parents, particularly my, my, my dad realized that I was trying to pursue poetry, he, he was confused and was kind of like, well, Wait, how, how do poets make money again? You know, what, 
what right. is it that, that they do like mm. and then I had to kind of revise that I had to stop telling him that I was trying to be a poet and I had to tell him that I was being a teacher as soon as I told him I was being a teacher it's more of a kind of traditional job description he kind of relaxed a bit and was like okay that's respectable you, you, can, you can pursue that yeah you know yeah. so um but the the kind of question about like the the mishearings is um and what that is have i gone off on a tangent am i still answering your question no, you still are answering my question but i'm gonna make my i'm gonna make my question more difficult in the spirit of some difficult questions you've posed so okay. <laughs> in your companion piece for your latest book the BBC radio documentary, Inventions in Sound. You look at the art of translating sound for the eye, and you ask your deaf artist guests what seem to be really evocative questions, but also, at least to me, really impossible questions. Like, what is sound? And similarly, in the middle of your new book, All the Names Given, you have a two-page spread, one blank and the other that is mostly so, with only a short quote from the deaf sound artist, Christine Sun Kim, where she poses a similar question. What does sound mean for us? And at the end of your U.S. version of The Perseverance, there's a a question and answer section between you and Ilya Kaminsky. And he asks you what noise is for you. So in, in the spirit of the questions you've asked each other, Talk to us about sound and about noise, both for you now, but also perhaps also how it's changed and evolved for you through the years of uh, puzzling through your your sense of identity and how you mm-hmm. want to orient, as you've already mentioned, both to the hearing and deaf worlds as, as an audience. What are sound and, and noise? Again, yeah, you're right. Rich, impossible questions. But I can I can ground myself in this question in, in, in a number of ways. I can ground myself in a, in the kind of medical language of how I would answer that. So I would then talk about my how my deafness was uh, um, discovered when I was around seven years old and had to be given hearing aids. Um, and so from the age of seven. Uh, to now I have had, I've had so many different kinds of hearing aids and the technology and the evolution of technology over that time, you know, over the last like, what's that, 25 years uh, has been rapid, powerful, um, you know, really incredible gains in, in, hearing aid, in hearing aid technology and what it is. So the kind of uh, hearing aids and the kind of way I experienced sound as a kid, as a you know, seven year old, even a teenager, even in school, very different. So uh, for, the, for how long? Only for about three years now, I've been wearing digital hearing aids, which are really clear. They also have an external um, mic to them. So I can so there's an app on my phone and I can connect the hearing aids to the app on the phone where the powerful technology that's in the iPhone, it also serves as a additional uh, microphone for me to pick up sound. So it was so interesting to me that I could remember my dad 
as the hearing aid technology improved, I can remember him, I can remember this perplexing him and being like, is your hearing getting better or is it just me? And I'm like, well, no, but technology is getting better. I mean, also, and this is, uh, this is, I suppose, a bit of a, uh, how can I say this? A, um, just digression, I, yeah, I don't know, a side note that like, because I've been wearing hearing aids for so long and um, my brain is quite well adapted to them. And, and on top of that, I've had years of speech therapy, years of hearing therapy, I've had all of this pretty intense medical uh, support to help me function in the hearing world. Um, and it's only actually as an adult, particularly as a teacher going into classrooms, uh, into deaf and hearing schools, um, that I come to realize how, or, or that kind of being in that space gave me the perspective of how, how I don't know, privileged actually that, uh, that journey has been for me because most deaf students um, I, I interact with even today haven't had that or that kind of care part and that's partly because in the UK the um, I mean we're going to get even more political now we're going to talk about funding and how children with special educational needs are often um, mismanaged unsupported misunderstood falling through the cracks of a system um, and this isn't just significant to the UK, this is a worldwide thing. Uh, I've gone into deaf classrooms, not only in the UK, but also in the US, in the parts of the Caribbean and parts of Europe. Um, and I've seen this consistent kind of, um, kind of challenge for deaf, particularly for deaf young people, uh, you know, in, in, in an education system kind of, you know, just being totally unsupported, unheard. Um, and I've been writing kind of anecdotally some of the conversations I've had in those classrooms. Um, none of that has been kind of published yet. I'm, not, I'm still figuring out what to do with this and how to kind of present it as a kind of case against um, ableism and, a, a, and as a kind of testimony, an empowerment, a self-affirmation kind of document uh, for the care um, and support and funding for the education of uh, deaf young, young people everywhere or deaf people everywhere. Um, so yeah, so, so I've just rooted myself in the kind of medical, political kind of area. Philosophically, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I don't know where, where, where to begin with it, but I do like, I do like what Meg Day said. I mean, I've already said it, but about this idea of sound being a morphology to hearing people. Um, and as a, as a poet, or as poets, we get to, in a way, revise and create our own kind of morphologies, um, our own, uh, you know, the relationship that we want to have with sound is, is something that we can explore uh, through our poetry. Um, and again, like, it's not just 
philosophy. You know, deafness is rooted, you know, deaf as a culture, you know, it's rooted in its in its uh its history of its education of the deaf and and the history of sign language, which is a really complicated, fragmentary one all over the world. Um the history of um yeah, like you know, deaf communities and the way that they've developed differently in the in their language. Um, and then, you know, we, as writers, as activists, as academics, we get to align ourselves uh, with that, you know, what we call capital D deafness, um, which is, yeah, which is kind of outside and beyond the, the medical. So the medical language. So it is, you know, it's huge, it's wide. I'm still, I still feel like I'm kind of skating on an ice, iceberg right yeah. now, just, just with that. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, I, that was a great, uh, obviously brief tour through these, th- th- <laughs> through these questions. But I, but I loved when you asked your guests on, on the BBC, what their relationship to radio was, given yeah. that the program you were producing on the radio and, and the radio as a medium was one that excluded you and them in, in a sense through the way it's, it's um, I mean, not your program, but the radio itself as a medium um, yeah. is it's largely not thinking of you and them as, as a technology. And I love their answers. So you mentioned Meg Day and, and, and they were mentioning how, um, the radio feels like a, a drum for them and that you could put your hand on it and, and feel its vibration. And they also mentioned how they would notice, you know, people would congregate around it. It was something that brought people together. And another guest said her and her friends would fiddle with the radio dial in the car while driving until they found something with a lot of bass, something that they could feel the, um, in their body as vibration, which made me think of your dad's low voice and you lying on his chest when he read to you. But it also made me wonder if we could extend something of Robert Frost's notion of, of the sense in poetry not being in the words but in their sound. In his idea, he, he, he was saying that if you hear someone speaking on the other side of the wall to someone else, you can't hear the actual words, but you hear the music and the rhythm and the volume and the tone. It's in all of those things where the meaning lies. And I wondered if we could take that further and say, maybe there's something tactile and bodily also in the vibrations that, that meaning can arrive this way in the vibrations. And it makes me wonder about the captioning throughout your latest book. Um, Captioning, we might normally think of seeing while watching a film or a TV show, but you include captions between poems and within poems in a way that feels like it's doing something very different than that. So even though we normally think of accessibility with captions, in this case, it seems like it may even be another mode of language in the book. Uh, And maybe it's another mode of language, the way we could imagine touching the radio and feeling the vibrations of the radio is another language of the radio. 
Um, but, but talk to us, I don't know if I'm going in the right way, but talk to us about captioning because the captioning in, in, in your second book, the one that just came out is, um, is, is, is very prominent. And I feel like, um, it just brings up a lot of curiosity for me. Yeah, no, that that's great. I mean, I mean, there's again so much there. You know what you just said about Robert Frost uh, is so true. I also think of E. E. Cummings, who has a line that says something like, "There's a universe next door. Let's go." And that's like the way out of this poem. And then he had this way for me of like when I, I remember being really uh, stimulated and excited by quite a bit of E. e. Cummings. Because it's not just its brev- bre- not just the brevity of his lyric, but it was also this way in which it made you look at the the white space around the poem. It charged it in a whole new way for me. And this was years ago. This was when I was, you know, probably like reading him, maybe when I was about 21, 22. But I remember having a very particular kind of revelation while reading him. And I and I and I I get like that. I I, I get obsessions with individual kind of poets <laughs> which which become very concentrated and intense um so yeah you bringing up the robert frost made me think of the time i was into he comments in that way um so what you say about the the um the captions and the different languages and the different mediums the different ways of being uh through sound through uh yeah, through spoken language and, and, and the heard language or felt language. Yes, all of that. Um, so one of the other things I was trying to do with all of my work, I suppose, is have different versions of it. So, you know, all the names given and the perseverance that, yes, they are they are books. They are kind of documents. But they're also, you know, audio books. They're also sound projects. There's audio versions of those books, which are slightly different. Um, if you come to see me perform um, and I'm working with um, a few of my friends are really great um, British Sign language translators and performers and I've been working with some of them um, Velma Jackson um, Anna Kitson uh, Jackie Beckford in particular ones that just three examples three names of, of BSL performers that I've worked with um, and so, you know, that, that kind of performance or that collaboration of the spoken word, the written word, the perform word, the seen word, the invisible word, like, you know, that is also having a kind of living life. I'm interested in the book or the, you know, the, the book, not just as a singular thing. I'm trying to make living documents, you know. Um, who is it? I think it, it might have been in an interview with Chen Chen. Uh, the poet Chen Chen years ago, who said something like, we ought to revise towards aliveness. I remember that, like, this, that idea of aliveness and feeling so invigorated by that. Like, what does that mean? I really investigated, like, why, why am I so moved by this, by the use of that word aliveness in the context of poetry and revision and, and, and performance and writing? Um, and I think that this is something that unearthed for me. Yeah, like, yeah, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create living documents and show that language itself is a, a, a living kind of technology, a living kind of organism. 
And if we engage with that critically, poetically, creatively, we are living, you know, we are, we ourselves become alive in it, you know, uh, at least that's how I felt. Um, so now I'm going to try and ground myself in what you say about like, you know, where, where the captions idea came from. So the story of that is uh, during the pandemic, I'd written the first draft of All the Names Given without captions, in fact. And I felt like there was something missing in the book in terms of uh, sequencing. The first draft of the book had a lot of sequences. For example, um, you know, we said about my name, Antrobus, and not only about the kind of mishearing and the history of that name, but also like the very real etymological history of that name. Uh, it's, it's, it's a locational name anyone with the name Antrobus can be linked to a town in Cheshire, Middle England, a tiny little village. Um, and, you know, <laughs> also a gift for a poet, really, you know. So I went to this village and had a day there with my mother and, um, and, I, and I wrote about that in All the Names Given. And while I was writing that poem, I thought I was writing a very different specific kind of book but then the pandemic happened and um i moved to the us and i had, was involved in a whole complicated uh visa immigration process because i was married but i wasn't yet given a green card anyway yeah that, that's a whole long tangential story but um i while with with the pandemic my my wife, her name is Tabitha, and me were, were separated. She had to be, she had to stay in the States, I had to stay in the UK. And I began just watching loads of TV, loads of media content. I, uh, I'm not a big TV watcher. I never have been. So I felt guilty, actually, at first, watching all of this, all of these TV episodes, like just loads of stuff and, uh, and kind of catching up on, on the, the a cultural moment actually that tv is having but i was watching all of this content with captions um i'd watch anything with captions i don't watch anything that i can't that isn't captions and um and i found that i needed to engage cr creatively to alleviate myself of the guilt i felt <laughs> watching so much tv uh, I think that my parents really hit it home for me that like, you know, we shouldn't be spending all of our time in, this, in front of the TV, eating squeaks, <laughs> having our eyes go square, you know? <laughs> so, so I'm like, how do I subvert this and create this into worthwhile time? And then suddenly it dawned on me, I was watching, I was, I was watching films, which I watched as a, as a kid, which were never captioned. I mean, I was watching them with the captions and realized that I had a completely different understanding of what was going on in these films, because, the, you know, these were films that I was watching on VHS as a kid with my friends, you know, these, some of them are like violent films, which, uh, you know, we had to watch it with the volume turned down because the parents might hear us and come in and be like, what's, what are you watching that's got all this violence in it? I'm hearing people screaming, I'm hearing gunfire, all this stuff. So, so, so I was watching, re-watching all of these films, like, you know, Boys in the Hood was one that, I, that I'd never watched. with subtitles until the pandemic. Um, 
oh man, there's so many, but they, they skip my mind now. Um, and I, and it just, it just, I just realized that I had a completely different sense of, uh, of these films and I felt almost disorientated by it. And I was like, oh, I realized that actually the stories that I had of some of these films were my own inventions. Um, and so I wanted to take that further. And then I remembered I happened to see Christine Sun Kim's um, exhibition in London in 2015, and it was called Closer Captions. And Christine Sun Kim, uh, as, you, as you say, uh, an amazing uh, deaf sound artist whose whole mythology, whose whole philosophy is, is a similar thing to mine of like kind of disrupting um, what the hearing world's relationship or assumptions with sound is and trying to revise or uh, challenge actually the sound in this way. And so she did this thing of asking four of her friends, four of her deaf friends to write the captions or rewrite the captions for a scene in The Little Mermaid. And it's the scene where, we re where it's revealed that Ariel has lost her voice. And so you see in the corner of this room, four screens that playing that same scene from Little, The Little Mermaid on a loop. And every, each individual screen is the same scene, but captioned differently. And I remember being just blown away by that. Visually, beautiful and complicated, but conceptually as well, just, just so rich. And, uh, and I never, I don't know, a light bulb went off and I thought, oh, I can, I can incorporate this within, this, this is deaf poetics again. Um, and then I, I was watching a film which had loads of uh, high pitch sounds in it. So I didn't hear many of the sounds in this film but they were, they were the, the captions would, would say things like, you know, you know, they were cueing me. So the captions would say things like bell rings, uh, birds squawking, um, telephone goes, you know, whatever. And I'm reading the captions and I'm not hearing the sound. And when I realize that this is a conceptual experience for me to read this piece of language, a, a description of a sound, which you then don't hear. It's, it's conceptual, it's completely um, abstract. And then I realized if you just write them down, if you put captions on a page, that democratizes that experience to everyone. Because then no one can really hear what it is. And then what, you're, what it does is it, it invites your imagination into that sound. And so when I started, putting these kind of captions in the book, in the manuscript, you know, and I was realizing that they serve as a, yeah, a kind of transitional device, um, as well as a kind of evocative, poetic, um, kind of mode, uh, you know, like I, I really wanted to, to not, to not be like, doing doing it for the sake of it. It really had to be grounded in um, in deaf poetics, but specifically into the book, because the book is like a kind of splurge uh, or an emotional 
um, in, and, and in some ways his, uh, historical um, response to me trying to trying to articulate some some of my shared history with my mother actually in growing up and um, and it was my mom who was my biggest um, campaigner and ambassador to get me here in AIDS, to get me into deaf schools, to um, ensure that, you know, I was, I got that support I was talking about earlier on. So I really wanted the book to be, and, and, it, and it is, I say that quite explicitly in the book, that it is a book for her, um, because I have the relationship I have with sound because of in a way, her vigilance and her campaigning. Um, yeah, I know. Sorry, I, I, I've been talking for a long no, time. That, so that was fantastic. <laughs> I, I want to actually, yeah. I want to stay with these questions of technologies of exclusion and also questions of accessibility and, and what you mentioned, uh, democratization of experience. Uh, but before mm -hmm. we do, uh, I was hoping maybe we could start with you reading the poem echo it's not one of the caption poems but it would it, i think it would be a good introduction to um some of the questions that i have that that would follow it okay yeah sure um so i just give a quick uh context to echo echo is the opening poem of or the opening opening sequence of the perseverance i wrote it it was literally the, the first poem i wrote after my dad had passed away and we, we were pretty close and I found myself having to just get away on my own, just take a trip somewhere um, after his funeral. And I ended up in Barcelona and I stayed there on my own for a week. And the first place I went while uh, in Barcelona was Gaudi's Cathedral. And, um, and I took the audio guide and then the audio guide had told me that uh, there's a particular uh, design of the on the roof of the of the Gaudi's Cathedral, where you where you were invited to stand and look up into the roof and shout and sing and be vigilant of how sound moves, and then uh, the audio guide explains how um, the way you experience sound under that particular roof is how angels experience it, and I was re I was having that experience artificially, you know, through hearing aids, and I was like, well, do are deaf people invited into this idea of divinity uh, and, and, and holy sound that we ought to be experiencing? So that question um, kind of brought forth this sequence called Echo. My ear amps whistle as if singing to Echo, goddess of noise, the raveled knot of tongues, of blaring birds, consonant crumbs, of dull doorbells, sounds swamped in my misty hearing aid tubes. Gaudi believed in holy sound and built a cathedral to contain it, pulling hearing men from their knees as though deafness is a kind of atheism. Who would turn down God? Even though I have not heard the golden decibel of angels, I have been living in a noiseless palace where the doorbell is pulsating light, and I am able to answer. What? A word that keeps looking in mirrors in love with its own volume. What? I am a one-word question, a one-man patience test. What? 
What language would we speak without ears? What is paradise a world where I hear everything? What? How will my brain know what to hold if it has too many arms? The day I clear out my dead father's flat, I throw away boxes of molding LPs, Garvey, Malcolm X, Mandela, speeches on vinyl. I find a TDK cassette tape on the shelf, the smudged green label reads Raymond speaking. I play the tape in his vintage cassette player and hear my two-year-old voice chanting my name, Antrop, and dad's laughter crackling in the background, not knowing I couldn't hear the word bus and wouldn't until I got my hearing aids. Now I sit here listening to the space of deafness. Antrop. 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 And if you don't catch nothing, then something wrong with your ears. They've been tuned to the wrong frequency. Time Miller. So maybe I belong to the universe underwater, where all songs are smeared wailings for Silesia, goddess of salt water, healer of infected ears, which is what the doctor thought I had since deafness did not run in the family but came from nowhere. So they syringed olive oil and salt water and we all waited to see what would come out. And no one knew what I was missing until a doctor gave me a handful of Lego and said to put a brick on the table every time I heard a sound. After the test, I still held enough bricks in my hand to build a house and call it my sanctuary, call it the reason I sat in saintly silence during my grandfather's sermons when he preached the good news I only heard as Babylon's babbling echoes. And listening to Raymond Antrobus reading from his first full collection of poetry, The Perseverance. I wanted to take this poem as a departure point to discuss exclusion further. I mean, obviously we have this sense of the architecture of this church, kind of like the radio in a sense, uh, as a architecture of exclusion. And, but this question of, um, can deaf people experience divinity has a legacy. Not only were deaf people written off as lacking intellectual capacity forever, for centuries or millennia, but sometimes it was questioned whether they had souls to redeem. And it was, it was an abbot in 18th century France who, who believed they did that eventually led to the development of the first fully developed sign language language. Um, but in thinking of the Gaudi cathedral in, in this light, um, you've quoted in, in, in conversations about this poem, uh, a line from Rilke's Duino Elegies, where he said, who, if I cried out, would hear me among the hierarchy of angels? And then also Philip Larkin, when he describes the same church as a, quote, tense, musty, unignorable silence. And both of these quotes sort of inverting the narrative on the church. But I was also, I was reading a round table that the, that poetry international put together of, uh, disability poetics and deaf poetics, a series of round tables. And one person on the panel was a deaf blind poet named John Lee Clark, who says, um, he isn't able to read nearly any contemporary poetry because no one seems to care about 
Braille readers and poetry. So his main source of reading material is Project Gutenberg, which means only poets who have been dead for the required 90 years. Um, So he's often startled when someone says to him that his poetry reminds them of Frank O'Hara or Robert Lowell because he's never read Frank O'Hara or Robert Lowell, that G.K. Chesterton or Christina Rossetti would be the poets he would think of as influences. And and then I think of um, two readings of Ilya Kaminsky that you attended. One, um, where he had a hearing poet read his poems after he read them, and another where he handed out printouts of his poetry so people could read along as he spoke in case uh, one didn't understand his words as he said them. Um, and all of this made me think of questions of both accessibility and of audience, because obviously with mm-hmm. Ilya Kaminsky, we're talking about making his poetry spoken, accessible to the hearing world. Uh, and that's the opposite question for um, John Lee Clark. Um, you've talked about how the word accessible in poetry and literature has a stigma, that, it, mm-hmm. that if you make art accessible... The common notion is that you're you're dumbing it down. But as an educator and a poet, two things that you've said are very deeply linked for you. Accessibility is important. And I was wanting I was hoping maybe we could talk about this and thinking of John Lee Clark and of the Gaudi Cathedral and of Ilya Kaminsky's attempts to give different portals into his poetry. Talk to us more about your considerations regarding both your written and performed poetry in that regard around these questions of of exclusion and inclusion and democratization of experience. Yeah, I mean, that is, again, a huge but useful conversation to have. Um, and one that, you know, there's no one size fits all this and it feels like so much is erupting in our culture right now so many things are being kind of pulled apart institutions are being uh ridiculed and asked to revise uh the you know their principles and and, and their code of conducts and all this kind of stuff so really this is a great time to 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 talk about about the, the, the considerations that just, or, or, or you can say the people that aren't often brought into the, these kinds of conversations because they're just not accessible. So um, I'm a big fan of um, Johnny Clark um, and his work. Um, so I, I love, you know, and I've never met him. Um, so I love that he's been brought in here. And obviously, Ilya Kaminsky is like a, 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 a friend, but a, a um, kind of, I don't know, I'm hesitating to say this, almost like a kind of mentor figure to me, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating to put a label on it because that doesn't quite feel right. But he basically a poet I look up to and um, uh, I check in on uh, to, to, to see what they're up to, you know, um, so yeah, this this idea of um, accessibility. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think w- what you say about the kind of dumbing down of 
assumed dumbing down of it is uh, to make it accessible is something I noticed when looking at criticism actually of my work I saw that someone had someone had said something like oh um, my work is uh, I don't know along the lines of accessible to a fault and I found that I found that such a interesting <laughs> i know I, w- I was i was i was offended i'll just say that yeah. i was offended because i felt like well i don't feel like you've understood uh you know the the, the intent my intentions of the work and and my my history because you know at school um at, when i was at school i was often told that you know i couldn't write that uh I was, I had learning difficulties. I was probably dyslexic. I was, you know, I couldn't write in a straight line, all this kind of stuff that I was pathologized with. And I came to realize that the reason, one of the reasons these assumptions were being put on me um, were racial. Um, For example, I, I remember my having a teacher who's, who the day she learned that my father was Jamaican, suddenly started um asking if i was smoking weed uh and you know why my you know i i was overheard saying words like uh, oh bummer clark <laughs> which would you know but words that just make my dad absolutely howl <laughs> a lot and but they 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 didn't um they, they didn't take too kindly to my <laughs> patois um, um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, and, and I could see how even looking, reading my school reports, I could see how all of these kind of assumptions were made about me and then my deafness and then, you know, the statistic that I often think about, you know, an estimated 75% of people born profoundly deaf in the UK grow up illiterate, you know, and that's like a there's a that's a complicated statistic because it's not entirely true it's like you know what do you mean by literate and illiterate um literate to who because a lot of these people are fully functioning articulate um british sign language users um and lit readers and people who have who have other modes of of, of communication and articulation so you know again it's, it's is what I'm saying. Like, there's no kind of one size fits all, and even presenting statistics to you would wouldn't present a full picture of how to how to create a truly inclusive, but also uh, a fair and critical um, world or, or space. One of the things I got asked uh, about um, after a reading I did with um like i said my uh friend of mine uh who are bsl interpreters uh was was from a deaf man who said who, who described himself as illiterate said he doesn't write or or he said he didn't write or think in english which i thought was a was a i like that he stated that actually and he said to me when is the publishing industry gonna catch up with um qr codes you know so there's uh so he had he showed me how he has some books which are translated into QR codes so he can um, use his phone to see 
uh, or, or to read in sign language uh, the text. And I hadn't, not even I'd seen it before, you know? And that, yeah, that was, that was an actual revelation to me. And um, again, was something that I couldn't stop thinking about when, you know, putting out my own book, because I don't have QR codes in my books. Um, I don't have braille versions of my books. Um, it's something I want to do. It's something, but, but also I'm not a publisher. Like it's not just on the authors to create that. You know, we need an industry work that, to, that creates that. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, maybe, um, maybe authors need to say that, you know, refuse to publish that, to have their work published without these different um, versions. And I suppose in some ways, you know, some of my poetics are an attempt to compensate, you know, for these, uh, for these uh, over, I'm even gonna use a, a piece of interesting language now, oversight, <laughs> you know? Let me suggest a, um, a reframing and see what you think of it. So a reframing of the offensive, uh, characterization of you as accessible as your work being accessible to a fault because it feels to me like accessibility is a is a continual um question and concern in in your work but that at any given moment that a given moment in your work is accessible not always to the same audience and so it's less accessible to certain audiences at a given moment and more accessible in a different moment. Because when I think about it, like I think it's obvious, at least to me, we can see you as the educator in your collections. And I, that has, that has no subtext. Like I'm not saying that as, as like some sort of veiled critique because it isn't for me, but I think of like the further you have a, you have further reading lists at the end of your books, which I, I really appreciate. You have notes at the end of the book that talk about the references and influences. You know, some collections have neither of those. Those are prominent in your books. Um, but there are these ways, it feels to me like the books are shifting modes around accessibility, where in one moment, maybe you're more accessible to a hearing audience in one moment, more accessible to a deaf audience. We have the presence of sign in the books uh, with the drawings of sign. There are poems that end with a sign that in performance would be more or less legible to a, a given listener slash viewer. Um, but when I read them as a, a person who doesn't know sign, that's going to be a moment of less accessibility, perhaps for me. Um, so that goes against this critique, I think, of, uh, mm. in my opinion, like this, this shifting notion of it, but it, it also raises questions of audience. And then I'm also thinking of the signs of the book are in British sign language. And I mention this because unlike British English and American English, which are variants of the same language, British sign language and American sign language are entirely different languages. And you've decided not to translate the signs when the book has moved from the UK to North America. So that's a question of accessibility within the deaf audience. Um, 
And you've also mentioned in interviews you felt that the perseverance might open you up to critique from certain sectors of the deaf world. All of this, again, brings back this question. Well, first it points to, I think, a much more sophisticated relationship to accessibility than, than what was leveraged against you. Um, but it also raises this question of audience to me and whether that question of audience for you is, is indeed shifting from moment to moment. If you could talk about that maybe a little bit, who is bring who is being brought in and when doesn't feel like it's a stable thing when I read your books. Yeah, no, for sure. That is a poetic decision as well for me, kind of, uh, you know, the poetics of uncertainty uh, is in my work. I also try, who is it? It might have even been your conversation with Ross Gay when Ross Gay was talking about um, generosity and gratitude um, and that being its own kind of poetic. I, you know, I, I was really um, invigorated again by, by those ideas and how you bring in, you bring in practices that you want to see in the world. You, 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 you know, this isn't actually just writing for for, for I, I well yeah I'll speak for myself and say like it's not just writing for me it, I think I do align it with my work with a kind of spiritual practice in that I am trying to create a tangible thing out of language which actually brings about practical change um, you know so and that's an interesting thing to do because you know like that kind of gap between action and language is actually quite a, quite a large gap, but not if you're writing, you know, in my case, like I'm writing books, I'm writing different versions of those books and I'm going into the spaces where I think some of the most groundbreaking change in our society takes place, which is in classroom. Also going into prisons and meeting, you know, gone to a number of men's prisons now and um that's always been such a kind of powerful and evocative place you know you talk about exclusion and invisibility uh and even this idea on something that people are talking more and more about now if like trans transgressions in our work like you know if we're going to be truthful in our work we're not going to be saints <laughs> you know what i mean like um so you know it's it's complicated it's a, it's a complicated thing to i know i've just kind of opened up about 10 different lids there so, <laughs> so, we could just so, open them up <laughs> yeah <laughs> so like um what you said about um how yeah the the, the tin house the u.s versions of my book still have BSL in them. That was a conscious decision. You know, I, I, because I, I don't know American Sign Language. So it's, so you're right, it's so different. So much more like, a, it seems to me from the outside, just observing it, there's a lot more finger spelling in it. Um, and I'm not the best finger speller, even in BSL. So I get so lost with the spelling. Like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. So like, um, but also for me, keeping the integrity of the sign which I have a relationship with 
a very design specific place that, you know, BSL, uh, I went to a desk school in North London. I learned BSL. I learned to, um, you know, the, 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 the deaf world, it, 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 the work is conscious of, of its site, of its space. So even in that kind of transatlantic, um, I know, translation, I kind of felt a need to, 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 to ground it still within, within my own context. Yeah. And, that, and you're right. That's that's complicated because that, there's also an exclusive, exclu- uh, yeah, exclusionary kind of. Um, well, and and your own context, grounding something in your own context is also complicated. And I I wanted to spend a moment with that too because it feels like there are many ways your life and your work exists in an in between, and but yeah. also insists upon not collapsing the tensions in favor of one side or the other. So you went to school in both hearing and deaf schools. You were teased by hearing students when they saw you signing and deaf students would mock you for your lack of fluency in sign, calling you a baby signer. Or if they saw you speaking instead of signing, wondered if you thought you were better than them. And because you have really high quality hearing aids, ones that are now small and not super visible, people have said to you, you don't look deaf or, um, or they might not know that you are. And that's been, you've mentioned that that's been hard, particularly during the pandemic because you can't lip read when everyone has masks on. But this is also true for you around race. You've talked about how people have said to you, you don't look black. And you have many poems like Ode to My Hair or Jamaican British that engage with your mixed heritage. But you also have a poem in the new collection where you're filling out your marriage registration and it asks your race and you fill it out black dash white. And that feels like, to me, like a really rare move, at least in American racial discourse, where nearly everyone in your shoes would call themselves black. But but we see you insisting upon both aspects equally. And in both books, we see you traveling up both lines of your family tree, which with what seems like equal emphasis, even the opening of all the names given enacts this gesture where the first poem has the line, give thanks for your name, Antrobus, which is your white British name. And the next poem we find you in Jamaica engaging with the Orisha of deafness. So I wondered if we could talk about what feels like this insistence. I don't know if we call it even handedness, but this, um, but if this insistence on not collapsing the, the binary one way or the other, and if, if that is something that is shaping your poetics. Oh yeah. I mean, for art to be interesting, you need, uh contrast and you need conflict and you if you when you can pinpoint the um you know the the, the two sides of that and then you have to align you know you have to <laughs> make that line of uh having these two seemingly opposing things uh both be true despite their contradiction then you know that, that that's great for any artist, really. <laughs> just, yeah. um, 
but it but it but like it, it plays directly into I think um my my trauma and seems to be a trauma of a lot of people who who grow up um with a need to identify in a certain way or articulate themselves like they 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 struggle to be understood for who they are and there's a need to develop a language or presentation for that um turns out though that that is actually a really universal thing and that as i've got older i've come to really understand or see it seems like actually most people feel misunderstood most people it seems i've met in my life anyway are often battling some kind of childhood trauma or some kind of misunderstanding and have that kind of urge to be fully understood i mean and then there are people who just don't really care I'm just like i don't i don't mind let me be uh, a a uh, a morphology you know <laughs> um let me be an enigma or 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 a, a, what's the word anomaly um but yeah so for, i think for my own kind of practice as a, as a poet as a writer uh, as a creative thinker i i've grounded myself in that uh very kind of personal complicated contradictory uh territory and even looking at like you know the hierarchy of what you know it's so clearly a hierarchy in the western world of like uh the 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 kind of overprivileging i think of the written word um and the kind of often assumed primitivization of the spoken word or the performed word and then there's this really interesting active I mean this is just a, this is this might be an a judgment so you know people feel free to push back against me on this but like it seems it it's like in order to justify um say oral the oral tradition it always has to be rooted in in the in greek <laughs> you know it's like whoa whoa well because of homer this is like you know it's a way to kind of validate it and it's just I know because when I think about again my my own upbringing and I mentioned in the poem about my dad's tastes and how my dad's love of poetry wasn't limited to the to the written word uh and neither was neither of my parents and there, there was no binary between like you know a poet who was who was performing uh folklore like Miss Lou Louise Bennett or Jean Binterbreeze or um Linton Quesi Johnson these kind of dub poets they call them um there's no there's no reason to to reduce them and their craft um and say that they're not as i don't know sophisticated or worthy as say a poet who we only know through their written words like John Keats or Wordsworth or you know romantic poets who when you read their lives actually had really complicated um relationships with language too John Keats was a working class man from 
East London who was ridiculed constantly for his for his uh, his dialects, his colloquial way of speaking. He was cockney. He, they, the, the critics said he had no place in poetry, and all of that context of someone like Keats has been erased often, it seems, and it's. It often takes like a, a working class scholar or someone with a deeper appreciation for the range of, uh, you know, language and what language says about one's identity to kind of exhume that context to Keats. I think it's a really important context to him, actually. So, you know, I, I see and I notice how um, one's uh, contradictions and complications ought to be embraced if they are going to be truthful and useful because otherwise we're putting out propaganda you know otherwise we find ways to um you know to just kind of tell a half truth about someone or something and and people can get hurt or harmed in that you know um and that's something i talk about um well, I have spoke about a bit in, in, in my poems, like, um, you know, like how there's a real danger that we're in if we fail I and mean, keep failing to really understand each other on a, in, in, you know, in the, in the most kind of human way. Maybe this is a good time to hear uh, a first poem from the new collection. And I was thinking of... Um plantation paint if you'd be open to introducing us to that which i think also is a poem that looks at two sides of of race but also again with the word and and the image too yeah so plantation paint is a poem so like i said like um i thought i was writing a very different book about antropos and my name and so given what you what i've already shared about the antropos name I kind of end up having to abandon that because I felt like I had to be in England to write that book. But then I, with the pandemic, uh, the, uh, just before the pandemic had kind of really taken on and caused a shutdown everywhere, um, I was living in New Orleans and, um, and I came across uh, a painting called uh, a, pl a Plantation Burial, which is in the historic New Orleans collection and so I'm looking at the at the painting. If you're listening to this, I'd recommend maybe Googling it, just plantation burial, um, so you can see the painting. Um, and so I was really struck. It's a, it's a huge canvas that this is on, and I was really struck by it. And um, it wasn't until, though, I looked at the, the uh, description on the wall, and it said the, the painter's name. And it was John Antrobus, written, uh, painted in 1860, oil on canvas. And it just kind of, again, created such a, <laughs> what felt like an intergalactic kind of <laughs> experience um, to, to, to see that, you know. And um, I thought, okay, well, I already know this is going to be a poem. Who is a poet now that I could summon, summon to, to help guide me through writing a poem like this? And I instantly thought of Lorna Goodison. Um, she's a former poet laureate of Jamaica, but as well as a poet, she is a painter. And she's written um, collections actually about uh, the practice of writing poetry and painting. 
um, and she's got one particular poem um, called, uh, to, I think it's called, uh, to paint various, various sorts of black. And it's um, about how black paint is made. Now, my wife is, uh, her name is Tabitha. She's a art conservatist. She was looking at this painting and she was explaining how the men that are in this painting, the black men, their skin, um, the, the, the paint that's used to pick their skin is uh, of such a low earthy quality that you know those men without proper care without professional care of an art conservator would deteriorate would disappear from that painting but I mean, it turns out that you know loads of work has been done recently x-raying um 17th 16th 17th 18th 19th century paintings and they've found black figures and the x-rays because they weren't conserved, they disappeared from the paintings. Wow. I mean, the conservators that had come along later on had painted over them, thinking that it was just like a, a mark or, a, you know, it's... So it's such a, again, another kind of complicated, rich idea that's also a kind of real-life material manifestation of... Uh, how we value and devalue life. Uh, so this is called Plantation Paint. Tabitha, the art conservator, squints at the colour, tells me to paint depicting the black of these men huddled for a burial with decay before the cypress trees surrounding them will decay. There are several kinds of black, she says and the cypress trees surrounding them is all I see as we stand alive in this otherwise empty gallery. Why am I like this? What am I like? Who does it matter to? All details question my way of seeing. I worry what kind of black would mark me. I am not the paint made from vine twigs or burnt shells. I am not the lamp full of oil. Tabitha, tell me how you'd paint me. Tell me if I'm closer to the white painter with my name than I am to the black preacher, his hands wide to the sky, the mahogany rot of heaven. Sorry, but you know by now that I can't mention trees without every shade of my family appearing and disappearing. I've been listening to Raymond Antrobus read from his latest collection, All the Names Given. So I wanted to spend a moment talking about writing about your own family, particularly when it involves living family members. So like, for instance, we just heard a poem where Tabitha is in the poem. Um, it's a question that often comes up for memoir writers. What considerations um, people have about representing people. But also in one conversation, you were talking about the autobiographical elements of a lot of your poetry and you made clear that these poems are not therapeutic or a form of poetry-mediated therapy, and that actually that when you're working on a collection, you make sure that you're also seeing a therapist to make sure that you have a place external to the poetry for the therapeutic. So I wondered yeah. if you could talk about both of these things. Like, What are your considerations when you're writing about a, a close family member or loved one um, who might read your work, and and then this also this question of th the therapeutic. 
So one of the ways that I want to answer this is, I suppose by talking about my, my education as a teacher um, at Goldsmiths University, you know, my MA was called a spoken word teacher MA, but actually I spent not that much time kind of writing and reading poetry and a lot more time creating a pedagogy uh, for, the, for, for the classroom in which I'm able to basically serve as a, someone who is functioning as a, an advocate for emotional literacy. So in the classroom, I'm, I'm, I'm more than just say a teacher, which is traditionally thought of as someone who's just standing there spewing facts at people for them to memorize and write down. And actually it's more of a kind of uh, sharing you know, um, I spent a lot of time learning about different models of uh, learning environments. What is a dem democratic classroom? Um, what space does humor and storytelling have in the classroom? Uh, and how do we create that? How do we, how do we even uh, assess it when, when we're talking about, you know, our intense, um, exam culture, which is which is making a lot of us very sick, actually. You know, how, how do you get in there and, uh, and subvert all of these things, which we know, looking at all the research, is uh, actually to, to the detriment of learning and what learning is. You know, we learn about how stress uh, on the brain, cortisol in the blood prevents us actually retaining information. And yet for some reason, we still have this culture which insists on this high pressure, high stress um, means to get someone to, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so bizarre. So the, the idea is that um, poets, creative people can be in the classroom and provide some kind of antidote to the to to, to what again yeah what we see is actually like a pretty toxic environment um often especially like the higher up you go the more money that is involved in education seems the more the, <laughs> the worse for you it gets um <laughs> so it's really interesting actually um but, but also scary. Um, anyway, so my practice, this is to say, this is a really long way of saying that my practice in the classroom as someone uh, advocating and practicing emotional literacy has a, serves a different purpose to coming out of that classroom and writing and publishing poetry. I do, I do draw a line between those two spaces. For example, in the classroom, particularly with younger people, I spent most of my time working with teenagers. I found that teenagers, young people have so much to say, even, you know, just generally. I've never met a teenager who doesn't actually have a lot to say, even if they're quiet or standoffish or whatever, like they've got something to say. And when you can get that out of them, and not just in a way that's, um, you know, just purely therapeutic, but when, 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 when that's part of the process, getting something out of them 
um, and then getting them to do something creative with that uh, thing that's going on in their life. You know, often it's like an autobiographical um, thing about them. Um, and sometimes it's a difficult thing, sometimes it's not. Um, but I've seen in this practice how, you know, we've literally saved lives doing this. We've seen, I've seen students, you know, write or share something in a poetry workshop that has then led to very real and positive interventions. So we've, uh, you know, I've had a number of students write about self-harm. I've had a number of students write about um, losing someone close to them who they, they had, hadn't shared or confided any, with anyone in, in, the, in the school environment. And then it's come out and then it's, you know, they've been able to, to be cared for and attended to in this way. Um, and then, so, you know, so, so all of that though is, is, is different, like I say, to like, you know, if I was then gonna take those students out of that classroom and say, okay, we're gonna publish a book with Faber and Grey Wolf, <laughs> you know, like that's a different thing. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about audience earlier. That's a different audience, you know, with different expectations, different experience. And quite frankly, I'm not interested in someone putting out uh, work that is just kind of, I don't know, uh, I don't know if you want to call it like self-aggrandizing, I don't know, therapy. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm judging or like I'm being like overly critical, but I'm talking about my own kind of practice and what it is I'm trying to do. Um, and when I put out the perseverance, I found that a lot of the interviews I was having, people were very kind of uh, interested in, in a lot of the kind of autobiographical parts of it. I mean, I mean, it's like, hey, no one's talking about the fact that like every other poem in here is a different form. <laughs> no one's talking about like, you know, the, 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 the craft basically. And I know again, the craft can be a complicated thing to talk about, you know, in and of itself and, and hierarchies and all this kind of stuff, but it is poetry. Like it is a practice, it's a tradition. Um, I am very invested in aligning my work with the poets um, that, you know, that, uh, that excite me or that, uh, that have moved me or that I feel I'm uh, in some kind of family <laughs> with them, you know, like I, I, I do subscribe to this idea that through poetry, through uh, active uh, reading practice, you can create your own company, um, your own literary company, and that can be a very powerful, important, worthwhile sustaining um practice and thing to have as you move through your life you know i take that seriously and so i don't you know so yeah it's important to me to to to, to distinct to have a distinction between you know a therapeutic practice and a poetry craft practice i still feel like i'm being a bit um maybe a maybe a bit um i don't know i don't know if i'm being fair in how this is coming out but but this is how it's coming out today. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. fair enough 
So we'll put an asterisk by that, by that response. (laughs) Well, there's another way in which I feel like you're an investigator of, of missing sounds beyond being an investigator of sounds that you do not hear, but you're also an investigator of sounds. I think that are not spoken in the first place of missing histories, um, that you're, ancestral investigations are part of that, but also lots of other things are too. For instance, when, when you were asked to engage with the legacy of Beethoven, you weren't interested in focusing on a narrative of look at what this deaf person overcame, which you felt like was an overdone narrative. And instead you wanted to focus on a violinist that Beethoven collaborated with George Bridgetower, who was mixed race with a Caribbean father and who Beethoven dedicated the Kreutzer Sonata to until they had a falling out. And then Bridgetower was erased from the musical history that we know. But I, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on, on deaf history um, mm. because it's this interesting intersection between science and medicine and education and in, in, in a lot of really um, terrible examples of, of good intentions causing great harm. Um, yeah. For several years, I was writing a lot of ears, ear-centric work. And during that time, I read Oliver Sacks' book, Seeing Voices. And it was a book that... that uh, Did you say ear-centric? E- ear-centric. Ear-centric. Ah, I like yeah, that. So, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I, and during that time when I was writing a lot about ears, I, um, I read Oliver Sacks's book, Seeing Voices. And at least for me, that really was a book that blew me away in showing me what I didn't know, um, about deaf history. And I was going to ask you your opinion of this book, but then I mm-hmm. saw that you had listed it in your further reading section. Um, um, but what I loved about the book as a, as a reader, as a hearing reader, is that Sachs comes from a certain natural bias, which he admits. He comes with a natural bias as a pathologist. And that bias being that, of course, if there were a technology invented that eliminated deafness, that would be a good thing. And yet he came away instead with something very different as an impression, an, an immense... Ad, ad, admiration for the culture of deafness and the unique qualities of sign language so much so that after he wrote the book, he began himself to become a student of sign. But you've mentioned, you've mentioned this earlier in the interview, but this, this dynamic that he goes through in this process, he, he goes through sort of brings to the fore the difference between little D deafness, the medical condition and capital D deafness, the culture and how if the latter isn't recognized and the former is emphasized at its expense, the results are d- often disastrous. Um, and as I was wanting to spend a moment with you about that um, because you engage with this in many different ways in the collections. For instance, you engage with the legacy of Alexander Graham Bell, who dedicated his life to the education of the deaf but in such a way that it reversed a century of progress for deaf culture. 
his yeah. his mother was deaf, his wife was deaf. The telephone arose partly as a result of his interest in deaf education and his belief in the possibility of a universal language. But his approach called oralism, where deaf people are denied sign language and encouraged not to marry other deaf people and to focus on speech therapy at the exclusion of signing had really disastrous results. All that time learning to imitate speech sounds, for one, is time not spent learning math or learning science or learning literature or learning or interacting within sign language, which Sachs is very clear is a complete language unto itself, even though as late as the 1950s, it was still not viewed as a true language, um, but rather as a sort of pantomime. And even many people don't realize that um, ASL or BSL are not signed English, but actually entirely different languages. But, but the irony of Bell's attempts to separate deaf people from each other with the goal of assimilating them is that in some ways, the most advantageous deaf person is one born to deaf parents because they get language acquisition without any gaps. And, and that's crucial. And Sachs was quoting the South African deaf poet, David Wright, uh, a poet who went deaf at seven years old after he acquired language. And so he would hear what he would call phantasmal voices when he wrote because he could still remember when he could hear those words, even though he lost hearing at seven. And he says his ability to imagine what being deaf pre-language acquisition with no access to language would be like is as hard for him to imagine as it would be for a hearing person to imagine. Um, that it's not a question of degree, but of a fundamentally different scenario of somebody who loses um, hearing and is not given access to sign language or language uh, while the, the brain is still plastic. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this entirely, but I, I wanted to deliver all of that information because it's been something that um, I, I have to say naively, I was so shocked that I would, was never taught any of the history that I learned in that book. Um, but I wondered about um, just your, if this sparks any thoughts for you, both because you are obviously meditating on these these figures, Bell being just one of them who is yeah. engaging with with pedagogy like you are and with science, but but really causing great harm that has taken forever to start, but probably is still going on, the re trying to reverse the process of oralism. Yeah, yeah. That, that's still very, uh, very much alive and well, uh, the legacy of that. Um, even just in the UK in the last five years, we've seen um, even more deaf schools being closed. Uh, and this is, this is capital D deaf schools. These are deaf-led uh, deaf schools, um, the, one of the oldest of which uh, was in Hastings and in, um, in the suburbs part of England, uh, and it's closed down, like closed down now uh, for good. Um, and the kind of more, more 
prestigious deaf schools in the UK are still often the schools that practice the oral method actually that discourage sign as a first language and um, speech and oralism over that. So, and, 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 you know, there are some students that benefit from that system and, and but many, many that leave damaged and traumatized from it. Um, many refuse to eat, to ever speak, to use, the, uh, you know, vocally to, you know, and just, only do sign and don't speak to any of their biological family. And, you know, I have a number of friends that are like that. They just cut everyone off um, and only, you know, interact and engage with the people that love them for who they are, their chosen family, who, who are also mainly deaf or deaf and sign language speakers. Um, so it's, uh, again, complicated uh, kind of thing. Yes, I completely love Oliver Sacks for his book, uh, Seeing Voices. I think that is a great model for anyone actually, any outsider going into a community uh, and wants to write about that community with kindness, generosity, intelligence, tact, is wonderful. It's just Brilliant. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I do, I do know that there were a couple of deaf people who had some reservations about it. I personally defended Oliver Sacks um, because I didn't feel like he'd gone in there with any assumptions or at least any assumptions that he, was, he wasn't willing to change his mind about. So you see how he changes his mind throughout the book. And that to me is pure investigative meaningful educational you know work <laughs> like it's just yeah. it's just work you see how someone goes from one point of view to another and and that changes purely through through you know on the ground experience and actual communication and then like you say he ends near the end of the book he says i continue to learn sign language i continue to learn about deaf history and uh the the you know the culture and the history and the and the how can I say the sensibility of deafness. He's 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 completely a student in that and not you know an authority. And I think that's where we often see kind of things go wrong, where people like Alexander Graham Bell had his own agendas, his own fixed vision, which he you know. But when you look at it, if you look at it compassionately, Graham Alexander Bell clearly had a lot of trauma, clearly felt like he couldn't communicate or connect with his mother, yet somehow ends up in, a, well, it was actually for a family, for like family, friends and acquaintances that he meets his wife. And then, you know, he invents the telephone. The man is a, a millionaire when he's in his 20s. You know, like there's a real kind of arrested development happening for him there. So like, you know, yeah. it's like when you really look at, again, the emotional history of these emotional, of, the, of these factual kind of cold figures, you, you can see a little bit of, um, I don't know, further kind of complications in it, which actually enrich, in, I think, that, that history. 
Um, but that's often not how history is taught or understood. Um, and I should say that, you know, there are some great deaf uh, scholars and historians. Harlan Lane is one of them. Um, Paddy Ladd uh, is, a, is another one who's uh, done some really groundbreaking work, particularly on British Sign Language and the, the history of British Sign Language. Um, so much of this stems, I mean, talking about le legacy, so much of this stems as well from, you know, the Enlightenment era, when people, the kind of takeaway from, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of years of philosophy of this one question, what makes us human, the, the answer was language. That was, that was the thing that they all agreed on. Language makes us human. And then suddenly they started putting up barriers around what, what a language is. So like you say, you know, well into the 50s, yeah, sign language still not recognized uh, as an official language. It wasn't until 2003, which is the year I left uh, secondary school education, which would be high school in the, in the US. 2003 wasn't, you know, when, British Sign Language was recognized as an official language, you know, so yeah. well into my life yeah. at this point, you know, and I remember that. I remember like I, I just left school. I just left this deaf school. And then suddenly it was announced that the government want to recognize BSL as a, as a, as a language, but they don't want to teach it in schools, but they don't want it on the curriculum. And we're still to this day, there's a, uh, an activist, a young teenage activist by the name of Daniel Gillings, who is doing incredible campaign work to get BSL on the, on the national curriculum in the UK. Um, and, you know, and that, again, that's a very uh, specific thing. I'm not sure. It, it seems, I don't, I don't know how true this is, but I did get, I did get an impression that ASL it does have a presence in American education, it seems. Um, but I can't, I can't speak to that. I don't know. Um, but I'm just bringing that up to say that that's kind of, you know, they're two different histories, contexts. Um, and, uh, you know, you said earlier about like how uh, I, I anticipate criticism from other deaf um, people. And, just, and I, you know, I, I've received my fair share of, um, uh, death criticism from you know from friends as well actually um, who has, you know who just kind of questioned um, like uh, how you know just just making sure that my practice is kind of grounded and um, if I'm talking about deafness that I'm bringing forward you know deaf led um, organizations deaf led activists uh, and, uh, and and movements you know like because i i do have a privilege in uh you know cultivating my voice yeah to you know to be able to have this conversation right now cultivating my language so that, and that is something i again i don't take that lightly that's uh something i, I really try to weave into to both those spaces that that, that you know, that classroom space and the work. So there are kind of overlaps of, you know, um, in terms of, yeah, practice and, 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 and impact and what it is I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to move 
how I'm hoping to move through the world and, and the work itself move through the world. Because once once a book is published, once it's out there, it's, it's, it's beyond you. You can't, you know, people are going to do what they want, really, or take what they need or what they want from the work. And then I've had all kinds of, you know, people take away things from the from my work that I've had no imagination of, actually, even. Um, I get I get messages quite fairly re, fairly frequently from people who have um, stammers or stutters and say that they feel a kinship, um, I suppose, with, with, with elements of my work. And so that, that interests me as well, even thinking about the kind of Audrey Lord idea of um, there's always an intersectionality. Um, there's an intersectionality with with my work that I didn't consciously intend, but has but has come back um, to me in in a way that has been a delight to see. Well, you do have many poems that are or engage with historical deaf people, for instance, the wife of Bell, and poems yeah. also that engage with representations of deaf people in literature, both more positive like Dickens and clearly negative with Ted Hughes. And you also have poems um, about unarmed deaf people and their deadly encounters with law enforcement or with anti-deaf prejudice. And I, I collected, I pulled out a, some of them and I was hoping maybe we could read a, a, a trio of those poems if, if, oh, yeah. if you were open to it. Um, yeah. So the three poems I, I, I pulled forth were for Jessica Gellin, Vanessa Preville, and Monique Vincent. And um, the ghost of Laura Bridgman warns Helen Keller about fame. And then finally for Tyrone Gibbons. Okay, wow. Yeah, great choice. I've, I've never been asked to read uh, these, these poems, actually. Uh, Tyron Gibbons I have, but not, not these ones. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'll give it a go. For Jessica Gillen, Vanessa Preville, and Monique Vincent. When three deaf women were found murdered, their tongues cut out for speaking sign language, the papers called it a savage, ritualistic, but I think the world should have gone silent, should have heard the deaf gather at St. Vincent, should have heard the quiet march towards Port-au-Prince. The British government did not recognise British Sign Language until 2002, BSL Zone, Deaf History. Before, all official languages were oral. The deaf were a colony, the hearing world ignored, and now the irony that the words noise and London are the same sign in BSL. It is getting so loud, audiologists are preparing for the deafest generation in herd history. In Montego Bay, a sign written on the outside walls of the Christian deaf school says, Isaiah 29, 18, in that day the deaf shall hear, above a painting of a green hill paradise. Harriet, the only deaf teacher in the school tells me no one speaks sign well enough to enter any visions of valleys. My dad never called me deaf, even when he saw the audiogram. 
he'd say, you're limited, so you can turn the TV up. He didn't mean to be cruel. He was thinking about his friend in school in Jamaica who stabbed another boy's eardrums with pencils. Dad never saw him in class again. Maybe that's what he was afraid of, that the deaf disappear, get carried away, bleeding from their ears. The ghost of Laura Bridgman warns Helen Keller about fame. They'll forget you, but not until men have sat close, touched your hands, asked their questions. What is divinity, eternity, insouciance? Your name will be scratched into reports, naming you proof that those born deaf or blind or both are worth an incapable God, a fragmented sermon. They will want to know if intelligence has a handshake. It took one man called Dickens to open my story to the world and call it how he saw, how he heard. Your danger is in his language. Don't let them twist your silence. The ear and eye are at the seat of their perception. We are centuries away from people believing our stories without perversion, without pity. Their speech will never really find a way into us. Will always be the sound of our separation. Who is testing God's hearing when you ask if my blood is dead? If I am dead, where is my thinking? Beware of Alexander Graham Bell. Decibel is his word. He never receives you. Oh, Helen, don't trust what you cannot say yourself. Um, this poem is called um, for Tyrone Gibbons, and I wrote it after um, Tyrone was a was a friend of mine from school, and um, I found out that he commit suicide, and it was such a shock and uh, moment for you, you know, for anyone who finds out a friend of theirs um, has decided to take their own life. So I didn't really know if I had any anything to say about this other than it's tragic, it's sad, and it shouldn't have happened. I was invited to um, to write a poem, though. Uh, to, I was commissioned to write a poem responding to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So I had to look at them and choose one to respond to. And one of the declarations number five says no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment and i instantly thought of tyrone and the injustice um which he lost his life um you know because of it so um i should also say that um, james baldwin appears in this poem because during the pandemic, I realized that I was lying to people. I told them that I'd read every James Baldwin novel and it was not true. <laughs> I'd only read two. <laughs> so I made it my thing to make, you know, once we're out of lockdown, I would be able to say, I really have read every Baldwin novel. And I can say that now. And you know what blew my mind? Every Baldwin novel has a suicide in it. And so um, that's, why, partly why um, he appears in this poem, um, for Tyrone Givens. 
<clears throat> the paper said, putting him in jail without his hearing aids was like putting him in a hole in the ground. There are no hymns for deaf boys, but who can tell we're deaf without speaking to us? Tyrone's name was misspelled in the HMP Pentonville prison system. Once I was handcuffed, shoved into a police van. I didn't hear the officer say why. I was saved by my friend's mother who threw herself in the road and refused to let the van drive away. Who could have saved Tyrone? James Baldwin attempted suicide after each of his loves jumped from bridges or overdosed. He killed his characters, made them kill themselves. Rufus, Richard, black men who couldn't live like this. Tyrone, I won writing awards, bought new hearing aids and heard my name through the walls. I bought a signed Baldwin book. The man who sold it to me didn't know you, me, or Baldwin. I feel I rescued it. I feel failed. Tyrone, the last time I saw you alive, I dropped my pen on the staircase. Didn't hear it fall, but you saw and ran down to get it. Handed it to me before disappearing, said, you might need this. And listening to Raymond Antrobus read from both of his poetry collections, The Perseverance and All the Names Given. I wanted to return to Sachs, but before I did, I just want to acknowledge what you said and around your engagement with the deaf community in a, in a bigger sense of centering deaf voices. And it's, it's the limitation of the fact that that is the book that I've read that I'm, that I'm, <laughs> that I'm so captivated by, but I do want to read the, the, the people you've mentioned, but he, he, um, he, one of the things that was fascinating about the book for me was also two extremes that he portrayed. Um, and I kind of wanted to just, lay both of those out for a minute and hear your thoughts. Because on the one hand, pre-sign language development in France in the 18th century, at least in his characterization, pretty much prior to that, not only were deaf people usually considered quote-unquote dumb and incompetent, they were, un they yeah. were unable to inherit property, to marry, to receive education, or were or given adequately challenging work. Um, and at one point, Sachs is at Gallaudet University, which at the time he was there was the only liberal arts college in the world for the deaf. Still is. Still is, okay. And at the time he was there in the 1980s, it was being occupied and barricaded by the student body who were demanding a deaf president, a deaf president, which they had never had in its 124 year history. And even there where Sachs was utterly personally transformed, sitting in on classes in philosophy and chemistry and math that were all conducted in sign, even there the administration treated the deaf student body in sort of an infantilized way in his mind. And, and Sachs said that the, the 20 years before that, so he's referring back to the 60s, that in the 60s there were less than a half dozen deaf people with PhDs in the world. 
And and you've mentioned and you've you you were quick to clarify that the the literacy rate scenario is is problematic. But you've mentioned that the illiteracy rate among deaf people in Jamaica is ninety five percent and seventy percent illiteracy in the UK. And in your conversation with Ilya Kaminsky, and then again here today, you've talked about how through much of your educational experience as a kid, you were met with low expectations from educators. That was probably a nexus of both um, questions around deafness and questions around race. Um, But I guess I I wanted to say all of that and then read a quote from Sachs because he also presents this other countervailing reality for him, which both speaks to uh, lower D deafness, medical and, and capital D deaf culture. But in his quote seems to mix the two. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Um, Is this appealing? Is this, problematic or is this both appealing and problematic um but it was really eye-opening as this completely different way to flip the script so this is oliver sacks and those who are born deaf and most especially those who are exposed to sign from the start that what would normally be auditory areas of the brain associated with hearing can be quote-unquote reallocated for purposes of visual analysis that with constant exposure to and use of a visual language, the entire brain of the deaf person can adapt itself for a special supervisual sensibility and organization, a special enhancement of visual powers that may not occur in any other situation. What neuroscientists have insufficiently regarded or respected and have scarcely yet begun to explore is the unusual quality of imagination and imagery in the deaf, particularities that the brain and mind have been taught through being exposed from the start to an exclusively visual sensibility. The language and culture and rich differentness of the deaf have a neurological basis. It is not just culture that is different in the deaf, but nature, the nature of their experiences, dispositions, and thoughts. Deaf culture is reared upon deaf nature, though at this point one almost has an impulse to drop the word deaf and replace it with visual, and to speak rather of an intensely visual culture emerging from a physiological enhancement of visuality. Sign, I am now convinced, is a fundamental language of the brain. Um, curious what what that evokes in you. I mean, I think about like all of the you have the test text image sequence and all the names given. There's lots of engagement yeah. with visual art. There's the drawing yeah. of of the hands signing in your books. Um, what do you think of when you hear Sachs speaking into this? I think he is speaking scientific brilliance. <laughs> you know, it's true. It's so true. And, uh, and I can attest to that. Um, when I did go through a period of just, uh, just wanting to sign and not having, um, you know, not having as many kind of 
in vo voice conversations and in that time i would even i would say that my periphery vision improved i started to notice it um it widened um also my dreams changed so the way that i would dream was that all my conversations were inside so i would dream about people who i know in real life who i'm only able to talk to orally vocally and they could sign and my dreams became this like deaf utopia um i found that so i know i those are, those are some of the best dreams i've ever had yeah. <laughs> honestly and in in how like you say in how visual and uh, evocative they were for me just growing up uh, waking from them you know i still remember them they really left an impression with me i want to also like uh, mention um the art architecture and this that as a kind of um idea um you know the way that the world is built the world is not built by deaf people, meaning the mainstream world, the, the, the hyper powerful capitalistic world that we recognize, you know, as a, as a city, it's just not built. By, I mean, maybe with the exception of Rochester, which I hear, you know, 90,000 uh, deaf people live in a single space that's apparently the biggest uh, deaf city or concentrated deaf population in the world. Um, but generally, um, buildings, um, architects, designers um, are not thinking about um, sound and how sound travels and operates in a space. In a, you know, so if we had, like, let's say if um, civilization was to start all over again and it was like a town meeting, where we had to get like a bunch of people in a room to design the equivalent of like a constitution <laughs> and 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 uh, and it was like ground level they literally had to build everything from scratch i would hope that there that there are deaf people there and differently you know people with all kinds of perspectives in that space um because i really do think that you know if we're going to this analogy of like kind of new building or building um you know we, again we're talking about inclusivity and we're talking about um i don't know even just just the power of the visual in some sense or the power of the representative being understood in in that way then you know that's how we've got to kind of go about it and i remember you know i mentioned daniel Gillins, this uh deaf campaigner for sign language in the UK. I remember thinking about that analogy when I met him and being like, you know, when I met him, he was 13 years old. And I was just, I just thought, my God, we've got to get this deaf young man, the deaf young, you know, he's a, he is a kid, like, yeah. into that, into rooms, into powerful rooms where they are making buildings, where they are building things from the ground up, which are going to impact uh you know how we live how how we view our life and then and the, the the brilliance of what the quote you just read from oliver sachs is that he is a um asserting 
a value on the deaf sensibility and the deaf being, the deaf personhood. And he's also going a step further and saying, we hearing people or you hearing people can learn from it. Mm -hmm. There's an actual like uh, physiological um, and intellectual um, lesson or advancement um advantage here actually and and i totally i totally see it and i totally agree with it and even in the school i was at i, I had deaf friends who i could you know the ways some of my hearing peers would talk about some of my other deaf friends it's just you know i mean we're kids but it's still like huh you really underestimate that kid because he He's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> he can do some pretty cool stuff, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, like these things, like just to put it in the most kind of I don't know um, male sports-based <laughs> um, field, I suppose, and field of language. Like there was a, a deaf football team, and uh, you would call it soccer, but I'm going to say football, as in soccer in America. But there was a deaf football team and a hearing football team. And the deaf football team of the, my year, we would beat the, the hearing team. And I remember when, when we beat them, when we beat the hearing team, the deaf team, I remember that was probably the closest that those hearing students had to the equivalent of what Oliver Sacks <laughs> articulated there. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, we've got something to show you. Don't underestimate. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I love that you just brought up both literal dreams and this dream utopia that you have while you're asleep and then this dreaming for the future, right? Um, because dreams is a huge part of all the names given. Like the, the yeah. epigraph from Juan Ramon Jimenez, the body as it daydreams goes toward the earth that belongs to it from the other earth that does not. But I'm curious about dreams more generally because as the, in the collection as a whole, many of the poems are poems happening within dreams. So for much of the time, the poet is dreaming in this collection um, as we go through the collection. What is, what, is, what is that about? So that's just about, again, like within death poetics, the poetics of uncertainty. Uh, there's an uncertainty or a real kind of disability to dreaming uh, in the sense of like, um, <laughs> you don't know what, is, what, what one is capable of in a dream. You, it all just unfolds in front of you in a way. Um, and I was thinking, of, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm British and a lot of English <laughs> poetry from like the 15th, 16th, 17th century, which I started reading, there's loads of dream poetry. There's so many like dreamscapes and stuff that happen. Um, like there's all these like fables and um, whole, yeah, there's whole sequences that take place in dreams. And I, I saw this, um, Oh, I can't remember where I saw it now, but but as a piece of language, it stuck with me. It said something like, the dream is the striving of the soul. 
Um, and I just resonated with that because there's a kind of non-linear, surreal kind of uh, truth to dreaming, you know, like that and that whole idea that like everything you dream is actually a piece of you, no matter how bizarre it is. And it, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, you really, your, your, your soul really does kind of try to communicate in, in, in the dream. And I, I, I believe that, I've felt that, and, you know, to explore that poetically within the context of, you know, um, of uncertainty and uh, kind of mishearings and, and, and miscommunication felt like a, uh, you know, a, a, a poetic, a, a device that really has a place, you know, in that book and what I was trying to get at. Because also, like, at the time I was writing them, um, me and my, my wife, Tabitha, we were living in separate countries, not able to see each other because the immigration offices had shut down. So a lot of the language that comes into those dream kind of poems in Orbanins Given is all actually kind of lifted from, it's what we would do. We would wake up and we would share a dream that we'd had the night before. It was a way for us to stay connected. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah. Well, for, for a final question, I want to stay with dreams and, and utopias. Um, and I'm thinking of Sachs when he's exploring what was a longstanding cluster of hereditary deafness that occurred on Martha's Vineyard up until the 1950s, um, where everyone in this community, both hearing and deaf people, signed. So up yeah. up until then, um, it was perhaps... Uh, uh, suggests a different way of being where even the hearing yeah. people among themselves would mix speaking and sign and the, and the, mm-hmm. and the deaf people in the community were included in a way that was at least partly on their terms. Yeah. In that spirit, I want to read a quote from Meg day as a preface to a final question. So they've said so much of one's experience as dis can be dictated by non-disabled folks. I'm trying to think about my poetics outside that paradigm, but it's kind of foolish. I was taught to write for a non-disabled hearing reader. I came up knowing that part of what made a poem a poem is its musicality, its sonic play. But play is such a misnomer. Hearing folks don't want you to just play with sound They want you to play with sound in majors and minors, chords and harmonies. Even what we call dissonance in a poem is a certain kind of bending, a certain kind of agreement with the way hearies process sound. I've memorized rhymes. I know where in the mouth you like your vowels to match. It's a lot of labor and who gets to enjoy it? Who benefits? Whose poetics are erased? I'm done with that. I'm working on being done with that. So in the light of that, when I th- as your poetry and your poetics evolves, the writing, the teaching, and the performing that you've made into a nexus, um, the use of sign in the books, 
And now the work with captioning, not just as captioning, but as a, a different mode, a different poetics. I wonder when you look at the horizon and dream, where do you see your your curiosity or your ambition leading you in terms of your poetry now? Ooh. I mean, that question keeps me aligned with the uh, poetics of uncertainty. <laughs> I, don't know, man. I don't know. You know, honestly, like, all the names given, like, I, I set out to write a very different kind of book and it came into what it was. And um, so, I, you know, I, you know, I really loved writing for children in a way that really surprised me. Uh, I, I did it. I wrote uh, this uh, children's book, Can Bear Ski, quite reluctantly, actually, because I wasn't sure if, I don't know, there, there's kind of a snobbery in the like, literary world about, about that. And I kind of felt like it, it didn't, I'd, I'd internalized some of it, maybe. But I felt such a, as I could see such a, a concrete place for that book in the world, considering the lack of. Uh, uh, books with deaf protagonists, uh, with deaf stories, even and going into deaf schools and looking at their library and seeing even in those libraries uh, there weren't many books. It was some, but just not not enough, not nearly enough. Um, so yeah, um, you know, I'd like so I'd like to do more of that, uh, especially being a dad now and look and thinking and looking at language and my son just in the last week, has started to become more vocal. He's doing most of go and ah and ah and boo. You know, he's practicing his consonants at the moment, <laughs> it seems, and some of, the, some of his vowels. And so it's like, wow, you know, this is, this is interesting. Here it is, like a, the lived uh, experience of, of you know, de- developed language being developed in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I now get, and I'll get the, you know, privilege, the honor, uh, burden as well <laughs> to, to, yeah. to give him language and to pass that on, you know, and I'm going to give him sign. I'm not, I don't, I want to teach him in a way that he can develop some sign and speak. And that's what's been best for me. Like there are people that have been quite, you know, Graham Alexander Bell is at one end of a, pure oralism never sign otherwise you know you limit yourself and for me in a way like even the kind of militant uh deafness which is voice off um on, only sign like don't speak to anyone who can't sign you know i i feel like there's a limitation to that too but again this is a personal thing so for me the thing that's helped me thrive in the world is the uh integration of both of the sign of the written of the spoken uh, and trying to for all of them to, to kind of coexist. Um, but I'm, I, I hope I'm doing that in a way that's not trying to prescribe, you know, or, or, or be didactic to that. Um, it really is. And that's why I say, you know, we were talking earlier, an investigation of missing sound. That investigation of missing sound is a kind of um, life work for me. It's like if you put everything I create, oh, I'm going to create in, 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 a, in a folder, in a box or in a shelf, it's going to be called 
investigation of mission sounds you know so any that's almost like a placeholder title for anything i write so whatever i write in the future will be in that folder on that shelf yeah well let's go out with um the final poems and all the names given i was thinking maybe we could hear lovable and closer captions okay um lovable the first time you told me you loved me, I didn't say it back, which is to say that I was not lovable. Those who have loved me before say I made them feel second to some dream I was having. You know, the thing with dreams, you're the only one that sees them. So when I say I didn't know what was talking the first night you said you loved me, I mean, I needed to hear it in the morning, hear it said when neither of us could be anyone except who we are. Closer captions after Christine Sunkin. Muffled. Sound of one story. Heart accelerating. Sound of skin covering bodies. Sound of wider seeing. I lose my hearing aids and move more fluid. The same way I do when I swim, the way I do when I sex. The thing the neighbors hear through the walls is me being pushed out of myself. It's silence that steals the noise in my eyes. Reader, this is the place I try to take you when I close them. Thank you so much, Raymond. It was a real honor to be with you. Likewise, likewise. Um, I've been a big fan of the show, uh, so it's such a surprise. And yeah, like I said, just great. I've been listening to you talking to so many of my favorite writers and peers and people. So yeah, no, great. Your, your generosity and the depth that you're that you go in with your guests um and particularly poets poets often don't get that kind of sternest um scholarly but also kind of loving uh attention so i thank you for that yeah thank you we've been talking today to raymond antrobus about both of his latest books out this year from tin house the perseverance and all the names given You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener- and reader-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Raymond Antrobus's work at RaymondAntrobus.com, and I definitely encourage you to check out his video gallery there in particular. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider becoming a supporter of the show. One of the potential benefits of becoming a supporter of Between the Covers is the bonus audio archive, which includes bonus material from Tija Jen, Jory Graham, Alice Oswald, Padre Gotuma, Douglas Kearney, 
Jiren Nagrifa, Arthur Z, Teju Cole, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, and many others. There are also rare collectibles from past writing guests, the Tin House Early Readership Program, the collective brainstorm about who we should invite going forward, and much more. You can find out about all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make this show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, a Sa Petita Mi, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs> <laughs>